Hey everybody, my name is Pej. We come on every single Tuesday, right around noontime. I always have special guests in the recovery world. We talk about anything and everything that's recovery related or lack thereof. Welcome to Pej's Recovery Corner. Because <laughs> the messages don't come here. We're live right now. This is Pej's Recovery Corner. I want to welcome my friend, Corey. Corey, pronounce your last name. Huh? Can I pronounce your last name? Prather. Prather. This whole time I've been thinking it's Prather. Everyone does. Don't feel bad. I don't really correct people. Okay. Well, welcome. Welcome to the corner. Thank you. It's good to be here. So Corey is a sober young woman that I've met in uh, certain circles probably a couple of years ago. Um, I remember being somewhere in a room and seeing her walk in and she looked really comfortable in her skin. It appeared that way that day. I could be wrong, but um, I, I want to know about you because, um, cause all the, even though that we are friends and we have run in the same circles, I never really like met you, like went deeper and have, have like, like we've had some good conversations about people and friends and things and helping people, mm -hmm. but, but like, I don't really know you. And then when you wrote um, kind of your little bio for me, when I asked you for it, um, it was interesting to know kind of what brought you into um, into the path of sobriety. So yeah. I want to know first and foremost, um, how old are you? I am 26 years old. 26. And you got sober at how old? 21. 21. So that means over five years or almost five? Um, so I got sober a couple weeks shy of my 22nd birthday. So I actually have four years and a couple four months. Years. And you yeah. are from where? Here. Where's here? Orange County, California. Okay. Orange County, California. And you grew up in OC? Yes. And where'd you grow up? Um, Lake Forest, Mission okay. area. So like you went to grade school, junior high school, high school, all in Lake Forest. Mm -hmm. So I was so born I was born in Riverside, and then we moved to Oklahoma and Tennessee when I was really young, but we came back here before kindergarten. So, yeah, my stomping grounds are here. I, you know, You're a Cali there. girl. Yeah. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. My whole life, basically. Your whole life. And how, what was it like growing up in, in Southern California in Orange County? It was pretty tough. Much. It was pretty tough. Um, so I, uh, as an alcoholic, I'd like to say that I'm a little bit of a perfectionist and mm -hmm. um, growing up in Orange County and the pressures of being here, you know, um, I think that society has kind of this idea that you have to be the best at everything. You got to look the best. You got to make the most money. You have to be the most successful. So it definitely played a role in um, a lot of my behaviors early mm -hmm. on and, you know, some like some bullying happened as a child and you know, it's just very interesting looking back and seeing how much the upbringing played a huge role into who I am today. Okay. So you were bullied like in grade school? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> in what way? Why is that? Why did that happen? I mean, because I got bullied too, but I grew up in Utah as a brown boy. What was the reason for them um, bullying you? Hello, Dr. Uh, B, by the way. I see Dr. B just said hi. <laughs> Hello. Uh, just a just standard things, mostly um, appearances, I would say. Mm -hmm. I think that that's something that's huge, the stigma that, um, you know, like your your looks are so important um, 
especially in Orange County, you know, and uh-huh. I, I was kind of a chubby kid. So I, I struggled with weight a little bit. And um, yeah, they're, they're not very nice. They're pretty brutal, pretty brutal OC kids. Mm-hmm. So. I understand. Okay. And then um, how are your grades growing up? Really good. Um, so up until about high school, when things started to go south for me, um, you know, I, I was in honors. I graduated with, you know, different awards, especially in elementary school. I always thrived to be the best um, in my academics because ever since I could remember, I've always wanted to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And I know that in order to be a doctor, you have to get good grades. So I really just tried to apply myself in that way. Nice. And then you you said when you got to high school, things kind of changed a little bit. Let me ask you this. Were you athletic growing up too? I played soccer, yeah. Okay. And when you said that you were a chubby kid, like because I was a chubby kid. I've been a yo-yo up and down. But when I see you, like, there's no chubby. You're (laughs) – were you active? Did you work that off? Is that what happened? Kind of. So a part of my story is, um, especially in high school, eating disorders, just a plethora of eating disorders. Um, You know, I uh, also really struggled with body dysmorphia. Mm -hmm. So any little tiny comment that anyone would make, I would take extremely personally. And uh, so kind of like you, a yo-yo, it would fluctuate back and forth. Definitely a younger child, my adolescence, I was a little bit bigger worked the weight off playing sports and getting active. And then mm-hmm. in high school, when everything was going south, um, that definitely participated in the fluctuation of my weight as well. Right. And I get that all too well. We, we, we be talking about uh, body dysmorphia on this uh, podcast a lot. I've had a lot of people that are dietitians for recovery and I am going to be having my good friend, Laura Reeves. It's going to be coming on in a couple of weeks too. We're going to be like, the whole show is going to be about like, you know, that like ED eating disorders and, and so, like, it's it's really interesting, like, because I've worked in the field of addiction for for a while, and mm-hmm. and mental health, and and I know that you have too. You just got out of working in treatment, but yeah. but we see them come in. We see people come in that have um, other uh, disorders outside of just addiction or alcoholism, or you know, obviously, I guess ED could be seen as like a mental health uh, type of component. But yeah. um, but it's it's interesting, like, to see how many people actually out there have um this issue and 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 so did you what okay so when you were in high school were you um what happened then did it transfer into other things so i think the eating disorder was just a part of the escape of the low self-esteem that i experienced you know as an alcoholic and just a woman growing up in orange county really you know i I was always looking for kind of that escape. And um, in high school, when I started really finding other things to escape, aka the booze and the drugs, you Mm -hmm. know, um, it's just an escape from myself. Everything that I did, any toxic behavior that I participated in was because I was so uncomfortable in my skin before I got sober. You know, I couldn't stand who I was as a human being. Not that there was anything necessarily wrong with me, but at the time I couldn't find anything right with me either. And where did you go to high school? El Toro High School. I know El Toro High School too well. <laughs> um, yeah, there actually used to be a city called El Toro, but then they just kind of morphed to like with, with Mission Viejo and El Toro lost its name. But um, okay, so 
I want to know something. When you were much younger and you did have the eating disorders, did you ever have any other friends that had them too that you could kind of, you know, uh, relate to to each other at that time? Or did you just feel like you were alone in your own world? No, not until high school did I find someone that kind of had similar experiences. I do remember the first time that I ever did feel fat was six years old. Right. So really, really young, um, just engraving you know, that, that self-worth and that self-esteem and just really struggling with it ever since. Did you ever experience any binging, purging, anything like that? Absolutely. Yeah. All so when that? I say a, a plethora, yeah, I uh, mm. used food for comfort and then I'd get uncomfortable on my skin and then I would restrict and then I would just vicious cycle over and over again. Right. So by the time you got to high school and you got into the drugs and alcohol, did mm. the eating disorder kind of just dissipate? No. No, it was most active in high school, I would say, especially so, the more that so I drank. All this was going on as well as the disorder. And Absolutely. So uh, what did you, how old were you when you first started to get into drugs or alcohol or both? So my first drink was at 12. Okay. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I did everything very alcoholically from the very beginning. I stole the booze from my dad. Um, I drank alone. It was a four loco and I remember being drunk about halfway through and, you know, I thought to myself, I can pour this down the sink or I can drink the whole thing. I drank the whole thing and um, blacked out after that, you know, so I should have known then, but I kept going. Um, it wasn't very accessible to me until high school. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of when I really started to shift and use that more so as my crutch than the other things. So you say it wasn't accessible to you. So how did it become accessible in high school? Um, I mostly stole it from my parents. From um, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, they, my like you had a liquor cabinet or something and you just kind of went and took stuff? Yeah. So um, there was a ton of alcohol in my house growing up, definitely. Um, and they probably never really noticed like some of it missing because did they notice? Did you ever get caught? Not, um, not at first. Definitely not at first, I would say. Um, my dad is a very smart man. So eventually he kind of caught on, you know, like, did you take this vodka? Did you fill the rest of this bottle with water? And, you know, just me and my disease. No, that wasn't me. You know, like, go look at the dog. I don't know. I like, I didn't do it. You know, <laughs> did you he have brothers like, and sisters, any siblings, two older sisters, a little brother. And how much, how different in age were you all? Um, my oldest sister is six years, and then the other middle sister is four years older than me. And my little brother is two years younger than me. Okay, so in that time, had some of them, the, the sisters already kind of gotten older and moved out? Yes. So all eyes on you. Me and my little brother. Mm -hmm. You and your little brother. Yeah. Okay. I call him Bubby. 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 His name's Tristan. Oh, I don't nice. know. <laughs> Very cool. Um, okay, so then... Um, drugs. You, I've heard about the alcohol. Were there any drugs in your story? Absolutely. Um, so in high school, it wasn't too much. It was a lot of weed, obviously. And then, um, you know, I, I kind of describe myself as a garbage can alcoholic. If someone puts something in front of me, I'm going to try it twice just to make sure I like it or not. And that was my experience. So I would experiment with like certain pills. Someone would hand me a pill. I would take it. I wouldn't ask what it was. I wouldn't ask what it did. Right. You know, I was just so curious. Um, and I really kind of worshipped the culture at the time. I recently realized like 
all of the media that you know I, I watched, all of the music that I listened to, the books that I read, all glorified kind of like this alcohol and drug consumption, and I wanted a part of that. Right. Was some of that music hip hop, perhaps? Oh, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> a ton of rap. A ton of rap. And I know the culture. I mean, I understand it all too well. I know I'm a lot older than you, but definitely, like, even when I tell my story, I talk about, like, everything we were listening to, we became that. Whether Absolutely. it was it was using certain types of drugs, dealing certain types of drugs, even the movies that we watched. Like, it was it was that way of life. It was just, it was the culture. It was what we did. And right. um, so you say pills. Uh, during, you're a very young lady still, like, you're 26, <laughs> right? So obviously you've been sober for a little while during that time was, were there kids around you in high school that were um, the types of pills? When you talk about pills, were there opiates, benzos? So, um, I have had experience with taking those, but those weren't really my thing. I, I liked things that made me go fast. The more that okay. I could do, the better. Um, you, you like stimulants. Absolutely. So, you know, the second some Adderall, some Vyvanse, it was game over. You know, those were kind of my thing. And then it progressed later on once I graduated. Into, what did cocaine. it progress into? Into meth? Cocaine. Cocaine, okay. Yeah. Classy, classy Orange County girl. <laughs> <laughs> didn't believe me, it started with Coke with me too. And I thought I'll never do that speed stuff. And the next thing you know, I became a full-blown tweaker. But it was like, I mean, yeah. for the last three decades, Orange County has been infested with it was a lot of cocaine for a while mm -hmm. and then it became straight up meth like a lot of tweakers oh, yeah and yeah. it's funny because um two weeks before i got sober i actually remember contemplating on my bed i'm like this is an expensive habit you know i need to find something that's going to give me that desired effect but it's going to last longer and i remember considering switching over to meth two weeks before i got sober so because it is very known to be the, it was known to be the poor man's cocaine <laughs> yeah, I was getting broke, you know, I was running out of options here. <laughs> okay, so with that said, you just mentioned um, it was becoming an expensive habit. How were you nurturing your habit if you were buying it? Where were you getting money? I worked. I worked a lot, actually. Um, so you, were, you were a functioning addict alcoholic, like you you were able to I make it to work and work in the workplace? I thought I had it going on, for sure, you know, because I, I didn't ever lost the house i had never lost you know like i wasn't married at the time um did you live at home with your parents when you were doing I all did. That? you mm -hmm. did yeah, so I lived much, like you were you were you had a place to live and the money that you made went towards drugs and other absolutely right <laughs> well, you have that, that realization two weeks before you got sober that uh that this is becoming expensive now what happened like after that what why did you get sober I, I, I think I recall you telling me you got into some trouble. I did get into some trouble. So um, it wasn't the first time that I got arrested, uh -huh. but, uh, you know, on January 15th, the day before my sobriety date, I went out day drinking bottomless mimosas with some friends because we were trying to drink over a hangover from the night before because we went club hopping and, and Newport, bar hopping in Newport. And, bottomless um, mimosas. That means like all you can drink. Oh, yeah. I, I left um, that bar like $300 less than wow. I came in with. And, uh, you know, I um, – <laughs> 
I started getting really blacked out. I'm a blackout drinker. That's been my experience towards the end of my drinking and my using, especially with the drug use. And, um, you know, I, I had my drugs and I remember saying, you know, I'm, I'm just going to do all of this right here, right now. And my friends got freaked out. They're like, Corey, like you're, you're getting out of control, you know? So mm-hmm. I was like, all right, I'll go home. And so I drove that night. Um, and I got was arrested from, coming from Newport. You were going to go to Lake Forest. Oh, no, I already had gotten us to Lake Forest at that point. Um, okay. I, I drove um, under the influence, something I'm not proud of at all, a lot. I was probably under the influence every single day, and I just drove as if I wasn't, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I had gotten back to Lake Forest, and we were at a friend's house, and that's when things got crazy for me. And then I was trying to go back home, and I was dropping off a friend, uh, there was actually a um, a car accident scene that I thought in my drunken stupor was a DUI checkpoint. So I went through it and um, it's my first God shot in sobriety for sure, because they were like, what the heck are you doing? You know, and, and I was just out. I was gone. I was beyond return. And I blew a point thirty two um, and I got arrested. That you, night. Drew, you blew a point point three two mm-hmm. four times legal in it. Your little body? Mm-hmm. That's like deathly for somebody your size. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm driving a motor vehicle at this point. And that um, it's such a humble reminder of how, you know, um, insidious my disease really was. You know, how much of a mess, how broken I really was. So it was a DUI checkpoint that you got busted at. You had never um, yet <clears throat> had any accidents or anything like that, right? So it was a car accident scene, and I thought it was oh, a DUI car checkpoint. Accident. Yeah, so you it was. Thought it was a DUI checkpoint. I thought it was a DUI checkpoint. So I actually drove. Oh my god! Into a car. Yeah, I drove into a I car. I thought accident. I heard that. I thought yeah. I, I mixed it up. I thought that you thought it was a car accident scene, but it was a DUI checkpoint. It was no, the other way around. It was sure. a car. Accident. Yeah, I was gonna go do the right thing and go to the checkpoint, right? Um. <laughs> you pulled up next to them. Yeah. Oh my god! I got myself arrested. One hundred percent. Yep. That's pretty crazy to be at a 0.32 mm-hmm. and still in, a, in you still were going to act responsibly. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of amazing. <laughs> like that you were <laughs> coherent. I, I think most people at that high of like a BCA or what is it? Uh, whatever. BAC. BAC level. I'm on BCA. Um, <laughs> that they wouldn't even be in the right mind to make any kind of good decision, but that's, that's amazing. Okay. So, um, isn't it crazy? Like now, now that I think about it, because I used to drive under the influence a lot, never got any DUIs, probably should have many times. Then again, mm-hmm. I was using the types of drugs that would make you go really fast. And so now when I drive on the streets, I think to myself, what a fucking danger I was out there. And how many other people are probably loaded on the roads right now that are, mm-hmm. that are a danger to people. Obviously like, I don't want to get hit by them. You know, I don't want to get like, like, t-boned or some shit but but it's right. it it's happens it happens all the time and then um i know like in down down in south orange county like they do have dui checkpoints and and the mm-hmm. really the coolest thing is when i drive through them i know i'm okay and i know so i can show them my my chip from like my whatever 13 year chip and be like mm-hmm. i'm a sober man and they'll be like go go ahead no problem but yeah. um, such a blessing. so that was that was your your wake-up call I would say so. So did you go to jail? Um, 
I did. Yeah. It's really cold there. I don't recommend it. Um, but the funny thing about me, both times that I was arrested in my blackout stupors, um, I was not a very nice girl when I got to that point. I uh, Both times I was arrested, I escaped my cuffs multiple times. I guess I was really mean to the police officers. They don't like me very much. And both times I was arrested, I was thrown into solitary confinement. You escaped your cuffs. How'd you do that? Because you're small? I guess. I don't remember doing it. These are just things that people tell me, right? And that's that's my entire experience with my drinking and using is I do something embarrassing. I don't remember it. The next morning, someone tells me that I did the embarrassing thing. But that was one of them. I lost finger and uh, my finger feeling and this thumb for like maybe three weeks into my sobriety. And I didn't know if I was ever going to get it back from doing that. Then I wow. just remember thinking like, these are, these are your consequences, you know? Right. So, okay. So d when you got out of jail, you were facing mm -hmm. a court hearing, obviously. Were you doing DUI classes? Is that was, what was the requirement? So what had happened was I had called my um, dad's girlfriend from 7-Eleven in Santa Ana because I had to borrow their phone. I didn't have anything on me. And, you know, she said, you kind of, you really messed up this time. Um, and we had a family friend by the name of Jerry and he was very familiar with the, the process of getting DUIs and how to kind of combat the courts. So she told me, you know, you're going to go with Jerry, you're going to sign up for these drug and alcohol classes, and you're going to attend some meetings. And I said, okay, you know, I didn't know it then, but that was my first sign of willingness to mm -hmm. do something different. And then I get to these drug and alcohol classes and I'm signing my contract my whole life away. And um, there was one piece of paper that had 20 questions on it. And the guy said, you remember filling this out? And I said, yes. And he said, to us, if you answered yes to seven of these questions, we would deem you an alcoholic. You answered 14 out of 20 of the questions, yes. So we would recommend that you go to a meeting tonight. Yes. And that's what we did. Yep. I know that the questionnaire. I know it all too well. <laughs> Believe it. Yep. So I, wa I walked into that questionnaire thinking, I'm not going to, like, I won't qualify. <laughs> not at all. So, so then, um, any rehab? Did you go to rehab or did you just do this on your own? I didn't. I detoxed at home. Yeah. You detoxed at home. Wow. Dangerous. I don't recommend it. Because you could have seized up. Yeah. Absolutely. But I was so ignorant to the recovery world. You know, I, I didn't, I don't have any family members that. You never you had know, experience with recovery at all. None at all. I thought AA was just something that was in like movies. I didn't, I didn't know it was a real thing, which is embarrassing now, but it's true. Did you not have any friends at that time that had gotten sober? Did you know anyone that was sober at that time? No, I surrounded myself with people that drank and used like I did. So I didn't have to look at my own behaviors. So you were one of the few in your circle of friends that did finally get sober first. Was there anybody, do you know anybody that you grew up with that was partying that got sober too? Yes. So there's two of them, but one is, you know, one of my closest friends in the entire world, we had similar running circles. Um, we weren't very intimate in our diseases, but um, I got sober and then she got sober about three weeks after I did. And she's just been my trudging buddy ever since. And I love that. I love her with my whole heart. Yeah. I love that. I only have probably maybe four friends that we, we used to go hard and like Mm -hmm. one, of them, one, one of them came before me. Another one came exactly a hundred days after me and he stayed like they all stayed. And so I think it's just, it's really cool to be able to share this path with 
with people that we used to get loaded with. Actually, like one of the other ones that was my Eskimo, she just took 11. I have uh -huh. almost 14. She slipped at four years. But I do remember that. And she was like a good friend. Like we used to kick it together. Like we did everything. We did drugs. We did alcohol. And I remember that when I was, I saw her in public and I was fucked up, like just fucked up. And she looked at me in this parking lot and I went up to her, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. And she's like, stay right there. I'm like, what? She goes, I'm sober now and you're not. And I can't hang out with you. Like I almost have four years, three years of sobriety at the time. If you want to get sober, you, you go ahead and call me. But otherwise, like, you're a mess, bro. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> I, felt, I felt, I really felt offended. Like, I really looked that bad. But you know what? That's the first person I called when I needed to get help. And she, mm -hmm. uh, she was around me for about a year. And then she went out. And then she came back. And she says that I'm her Eskimo. I just love her to death. Like, she's such a beautiful mm -hmm. human being. So she's a good friend. And I got, like, two other good ones, too. But um, I love that we're able to be, you know, in our friends' lives and like our true authentic selves rather than that old culture, that old lifestyle. So, mm -hmm. so here's like, this is something I was thinking before I even started this podcast today um, was to talk. I want to talk to you about, um, I love when I see young people get sober, especially like in their 20s. I think to myself when I was in my 20s, um, was the thought of sobriety even contemplated? It was not. Mm -hmm. Then again, like then again, like in my twenties in our area, we didn't have friends that were overdosing and dying on stuff that would kill you in five seconds. We didn't right. have that. I did have one friend that like moved in. He was more of a cocaine user, but then he went to LA and did some heroin one night, a couple of nights, and then he died. He overdosed and died. And like his friends left him there to die because they were afraid they were going to get in trouble. So that right. was like the first time I ever saw someone that actually overdosed on heroin. And I went to his funeral tweaked out of my mind, right? Crying mm -hmm. all the way there, crying all the way back. But I was high, getting high in the parking lot there. Um, so now we have, mm -hmm. we see a lot of people come into the program at a very young age and some of them stay. Some of them come and stay for a little while, a few years. Some of them stay for a year. But I, I often see a lot of people that come, and I, I, I tend to wonder when they go back out. I put myself in their shoes, and I think to myself, like, why did they go out? Like, why did they come and try this way of life but not stay in this way of life? Is it because they think that they're missing out on something? Like, mm -hmm. like maybe they made a big mistake, and maybe they're not really an alcoholic or an addict or – do they do they think they're cured or do, like have they not had an awakening as a result of like doing some serious recovery work? What could it be? Like I know that everybody has their own path and their own journey. And sadly, I've seen a lot of people, it doesn't even matter if they're young. I've seen people that were in their 30s and 40s and they come into recovery and they'll be here for a minute and then they're gone. And yeah. and a lot of times like they'll die because because they went back and tested the waters. And they don't realize that when you play with fire, you will get burnt. So, so when I see you, like something about you and the way that you are, like, I don't just mean the fact that you're well-spoken and like you're, you just, it's, it's your spirit. It seems like you're here to stay. Like you really are enjoying your sobriety. 100%. And you know, then you hit the head on the nail. The nature of this disease is so cunning, baffling and powerful. And I've lost more people and I can count, you know, old friend groups and, you know, my new found friends and sobriety and, you know, a couple of the people that I've mentored. And 
you know, I think that what you said is 100% accurate. It is a humble, full admission to yourself that you cannot under any circumstances, you know, go back and try to do it like a gentleman, like they say, you know, I, I had a very, very thorough um, admission to myself that I know that I cannot just control and enjoy and manage my drinking and my drug use. When I put something in my body, I know that my life is going to crumble. And um, I think with that, as well as kind of finding a spiritual path, finding a relief to that alcoholism, Mm -hmm. that is why I've stayed. I do not take any credit for the amount of sober time that I have. Um, Did I put in footwork? Yes. Did I take action? Mm-hmm. Yes, but I am not here on my own volition, not even close. I, I absolutely love that. You know wh- why that matters to me so much is, is I believe that as human beings, we have these choices in life to make decisions to change for the better. Absolutely. These, are, these are sayings that people tell us as we're growing up because they want to teach, because they're looking out for our best interest, right? <laughs> the sad thing is, is I think about all of the friends that we see dying of, of this, we can call it a disease, a mental illness. Uh, I believe that I don't give a shit if you do fentanyl or if you drink yourself to death, right? If you've already been on the path of recovery, I believe that the majority, if not all of our friends that have passed away, which is very sad when we lose them, mm-hmm. in a sense, I've kind of become desensitized to it because it happens so often. Mm-hmm. I believe their egos take them out. I believe that they've gotten all the information that they need, if not more, to be able to do to walk this path and mm-hmm. really do the work that we do. But for whatever reason, and I'm not blaming them, I do know that there are a lot of people that have deep-rooted traumas and issues that if they don't work through that shit, they will just bog it down and, and end up going back and using something to keep numbing that to be able mm-hmm. to not ever have to feel their feelings. My m- m- One of my favorite human beings, my mentor, I'll call him here in this circle, um, <laughs> he often tells me, it's okay to feel your feelings, Pesh. It's really okay mm-hmm. to feel your feelings. And and I really, I believe in that, you know? So I, I love that you had enough sense after one DUI, because I see motherfuckers that get like four and five and six DUIs and they're still not done. And they're yeah. still fucking drinking and driving and shit. But like, when you had the the common sense to be like, you know what, this is serious. Like this is serious yeah. business, right? I see people that overdose on fentanyl uh, countless times. Some of them that go into comas, like straight up fucking comas. Like they're in four or five day comas. They get out, they go and get high again. Like they're just captivated by that drug, or there or some people are just captivated by the drink. And I, I feel like it's a soul sickness. And I think that we all have the opportunity. I love the example that you are for not just the younger community but for any woman or man in recovery because you're a, you're a dignified woman and i know that about you like you really um you're of service to your fellow men and women uh the few times that we did interact uh, i called you it was to help people it was, we were in the field of helping people why did you leave treatment i left treatment to expand um basically you know, my skill set. So I love treatment. I love what it stands for in the sense that I am helping the next person that is suffering. I did every single position possible in treatment, I believe. Um, 
you know, I was a tech, I did case management, I was a program manager for the women's tracks, um, you know, and, and I started going into kind of corporate quality assurance stuff. Mm. And, um, you know, I decided I kind of hit the end of the rope and it was time for me to grow more, you know, and my journey is all about continuing to grow, whether that be spiritually or emotionally. I never want to stay stagnant. So if I'm starting to feel stagnant and I'm kind of getting that push from my higher power, I need to go do something different because my comfort zone is going to kill me, whether that's work or anything. So I still love that. And I support that 100%. I believe that we do, we can and should expand our horizons. I've often like, I get so engulfed in working in the treatment industry that like, it can become, you know, some days you have your days, you see some shit. And then I'll start to think to myself, like, what if I just became a car dealer? Like, (laughs) I just have to get up in the morning, put on a nice suit, go down there, talk to some people. I'm, you know, you know, have a silver tongue, sell the shit, go home, not take my job home with me. Mm-hmm. Right. But then I think, no, Pej, like I, I like to I know that I, I there's a lot of other things I want to do. And one day I'll actually sit and tell you like a lot of stuff I'm working on. But like, I like what I do and I love what you've done, you know, and I love that you're are you going into the world of real estate now? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm actually in school for real estate. But that's kind of part of the bigger plan is to get real estate under my belt. I have a huge passion for interior and exterior design. So kind of really following that right now kind of things i'm passionate about and then hopefully get enough passive income to go back to school to get my doctorate like i was talking about so yeah okay nice very like in alignment with what i'm trying to do so those are the goals the main goals that's good it's good to have goals it's it's really good that you're young and that you're able to set up these types of goals that are realistic now i think it's a lot more realistic now that you're sober as opposed to if you're still loaded um so we talked about um we labeled this show today Corey sober and spiritually free what do you do for your spirit when it comes to spirituality like oh what, do you do? what a heavy question um a lot i definitely where do i begin so meditation is key for me making sure that i am grounded and in balance um I use a lot of different metaphysical tools. I feel really connected when I'm in nature. I actually took something like what I call like a trip with God this past weekend. I just took a solo trip up to the mountains, um, went on some really cool hikes, saw some really rad mountains, played in the snow, you know, keeping that that spirit very like fresh and alive and, you know, just visualized my higher power with me the entire time. You know, I'm really just kind of becoming best friends with whatever you want to call it, the, the spirit of the universe, God, Allah, Buddha, whatever, you know, it, it's all the same for me. Yes. Um, and I try to find spirituality in everything, really, you know, children's laughter, you know, um, I love it. hands down the street. Like, I think everything is connected 100%. Absolutely. You're very, very, that's true. Um, so with your new endeavors, as far as, you know, your goals that you're setting and all that, obviously mm-hmm. you're still, I love that you'll still be available to women, most likely, that, that you help. I want to ask you this, because this is really – our friend Daniel's on here. I guess he knows you, too. Um, Daniel Bashir, he says hi. Hi, Daniel. Um, in the last month, we have lost people that I've known very, very well mm-hmm. to um, overdoses, 
And I don't, I don't think it's something that we should keep quiet. I'm not going to go out and say their names. Like we all know who they are if we know who they are. Right. It's mm -hmm. not like we need to broadcast um, exactly who they are and why it happened. However, I don't want, I want to kill the stigma of addiction. Um, right. When you have somebody that you see as a chronic relapser that keeps going in and out, in and out, um, what, what, what do you say to them? Like, how do you, what kind of conversations do you have with them? If you could just briefly talk about that. Sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I always try to keep that hand open, you know, because I would not be half of the woman that I am today if it wasn't for women that had walked this journey before me. And it is my primary purpose to make sure that my hand reaches out to the next person suffering and I think the most important thing for me to reiterate to them is remind them that they're not alone. You know, they're not alone in their feelings. They're not alone in, in what they, um, what they've gone through. I think that, you know, in order to really dive into this thing, you have to get uncomfortable. You have to do things and feel things that you don't want to feel. And if someone's coming in like a revolving door, it's because they're not digging deep enough. They're not really diving into what you were talking about, those traumas, that emotional relapse before the physical relapse. If they're not able to address those demons, then there's no real shot because sobriety isn't just a physical thing. It's it's an emotional thing. It's a spiritual thing. And you really have to get down to those causes and conditions. And are you afraid to tell them that? I mean, or do you, do you not no. hold back? No, I mean, I try to do everything with love and tolerance. Absolutely. Right. But you know, yeah. you, you can't sugarcoat this shit. People are yeah. dying. Yeah. I think right. that's really important that, um, you know, we, we give ourselves authentically and we give it like it is, you know, that vulnerability. That's what kept me around for as long as it did when other people were like, this is, this is a real deal. You right. know, like, you're going to die. That's right. Once upon a time, like I did, I didn't care if I lived or died, you know. So I know what that's like. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But right. to recognize that there's some so much of a bigger purpose for these people's lives that if they just stuck around long enough to just see like a sliver of that miracle, mm -hmm. you know, that's my one hope for them is that they they find their seat and they stay long enough to see how much better it really gets. That's right. You're absolutely right. And I've I've have um I have a spiritual teacher that tells me. <clears throat> that when you live in the truth and you are the truth, mm -hmm. um, if you have a friend that you really consider somebody that you want to be their friend, a true friend will never turn a blind eye to another true friend's shortcomings. They Sorry. will tell them because if other people don't tell them and turn a blind eye to it, they're not a true friend. You're doing a disservice to somebody if you're not telling them. So, and there's been times where, um, where I've seen people that are so fucked off through, to the point where I just think to myself, I'm tired of fucking saying anything to that person. Or I haven't, I don't even want to deal with that person. That's my ego saying, I don't want to deal with that person. Right. But if mm -hmm. I am honest with them, then later on when, you know, it happens so commonly in our world where you see on Facebook, like another one gone too soon. And I think mm -hmm. to myself, well, fuck, I know at least, at least I know I fucking tried to talk to that person. Right. At least I know, like I didn't, hold back. Like you said, I, I love that. Like, I don't want to sugarcoat shit. I can't caught, we, we coddle the alcoholic. We bury the alcoholics like right. straight up. I'll, I'll be, you know, and, and I may, you might hate my guts if I tell you this, but like, I see you like on a death mission, like you're going to fucking die. 
And we right. got to see that because that's what the reality of it is, right? And it just baffles me that a lot of our friends that do use that stuff, like especially fentanyl, they know that their friends die. They know they 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 know they've overdosed and they've they've like just barely touched like the other side of of, but they they were able to stay. Yet they still don't want to get well. And I believe like one of the things when they call it an accidental overdose, it's because most people that use fentanyl aren't doing it with with an with a suicidal intention to the point where they think i'm going i'm doing this today to die no they're doing it to sedate to get loaded and and they don't think that it's going to happen that one time they don't think they're going to die they think if they just do it in a smaller dose or something like that they're going to be okay but you know i've seen some shit just in the last couple of weeks i'm talking straight up smoking it straight up smoking it dead getting, you know, chest pumped by the paramedics and just gone dead, just gone just like that. And it's, it's a trip because I was just with them a day before a week before yeah. having regular conversations and shit. And to see like uh, their body is there and then they're gone. Like they're gone. Souls mm-hmm. are never gone obviously, but, um, but I believe that we as people that um, embrace sobriety and continue to walk this path shoulder to shoulder can be examples for people and, and do our very best. And I love, 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 love you and love what you're doing and who you are. You're, you know, we, me and you, we vibe from, from the very beginning. I remember Absolutely. that. Like, there's just something special about you. And I think that you okay. recognize something within me too, to where we just became immediate friends. And so I am grateful to have had you on here. Like the second that I put the word out that I'd like to get some sober women on the podcast, when, when I saw your name come through, I was like, oh, we got to get her on. <laughs> Because we're not going to waste any fucking time. Like, we need to get Corey on here. So I'm so grateful for you. Do you have anything that you want to say before we close it out? Yeah, just thank you so much for having me, you know. And if someone is struggling, please reach out. Understand that you're not alone. And like Pej was saying, people are dying out there. It's serious. And no one ever thinks it's going to be them. So if you ever need someone, I'm here for you. I know that Pej is here for you. And Pej, I just love you. Thank you so much. I love you too. Thank you for coming to the corner. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.